everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 97. We're going to talk about something that you do for hopefully about one-third of your life, uh, at least one-third of your life every day, uh, but maybe you don't always get there. What's that, you ask? It's called sleep. And I know that we just did an episode on this, episode 93, where we talked to uh, sleep medicine fellow, uh, fellowship trained physician, Dr. Nate Gordon. Uh, so I'll put that link in the description below. You don't need to listen to it before this podcast, but if you're still curious on like sleep, what do, uh, we'll refer you to that one. This one is about our research review for the month of May, year 2020. We went ham on this one. So Austin, First off, what's going on, dude? Hey, uh, I'm around. I'm hanging in there. I've been bouncing between Louisiana and Texas and uh, currently attending on the, the inpatient wards at the moment. And uh, then other than that, just trying to get into as many uh, politically charged arguments about COVID, <laughs> COVID as I can. You're, you're on the front lines. So here's the question. So you, I remember we talked about this. Is the border between Louisiana and Texas still closed? Uh, like to general transit? Not currently. And even when it was supposedly closed, I was personally, I did not encounter like closure checkpoints or anything like that when I was traversing it, even though I had, you know, reason to, to make that trip for, for, um, you know, working in medicine, I didn't encounter like a lockdown checkpoint uh, back then. And I think it's opened back up since then. Yeah. I, I always, I wonder how they did that because I thought it was like unconstitutional to like stop interstate commerce. I know there was some talks about that when uh, I believe it was like Rhode Island or some other uh, uh, state in the Northeast was like looking around for New York license plates. Uh, oh, oh, <laughs> I think we probably both heard that on the last Freakonomics podcast. Yeah, yeah. I was like, is this constitutional? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, so just for everyone listening, that is the extent of our political discussion. <laughs> I just, you know, and, and I, it sh I should say this, I think – our role, we view our role here as like scientific or arbiters of scientific information, not necessarily issue advocates uh, for the most part, although there are some issues we feel pretty strongly about, like, you know, promoting physical activity, uh, uh, participation in physical activity, promoting healthy lifestyle changes, promoting self-efficacy uh, with respect to a whole host of different things, including like pain management and like it just runs the gamut. Uh, but for the most part, when we're trying to like convey information. We're just trying to make it more accessible to folks. Um, not necessarily weigh in on like, this is the appropriate policy because neither of us are politicians or have any role in like making policy. We just, you know, have some information and we want to provide it to y'all. And then you can kind of, you know, <laughs> roll it around in your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can roll it around in your brain, and and then if you feel that that should inform policy uh, when when appropriate, then you know you can vote for the right person and, and make that happen. But uh, you know that YouTube video that I, that we posted or I posted, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it's just it, it was about you know look some some states are opening gyms right as part of their like yeah sure res easing restrictions and yeah. so i thought it would be appropriate to like well they're doing this anyway people should be informed about you know risk benefit and kind of like how that works out and uh still i didn't make any comments on like this is the appropriate policy or this is not a good policy but yet in the comments just people have emotionally charged opinions and i just i'm not here for it 
Don't do it. Same. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Don't want it. All right. So let's let's get into the meat of this. Austin, what was the study you reviewed this month? So I reviewed a study by an individual named Koba Sebik uh, in 2017. The title was The Effect of Resistance Exercise on Sleep, a Systematic Review of Randomized Controlled Trials. Um, basically, you know, there is, as with most areas of health, there is a general understanding or acceptance of the idea that exercise has the potential to have positive effects on people. However, what much what is much less recognized in a lot of these areas is that resistance exercise can fit into that. So among the general public, among, you know, a lot of kind of lay population, even those who don't maybe don't already train, they might uh, think, oh, of course, like, you know, aerobic activity is is healthy, but they view lifting weights for any number of reasons as either being deleterious, for example, in the context of an individual who, say, has back pain or something like that, um, or they may, you know, uh, not be aware that it has any um, place for benefit with respect to other outcomes, including sleep, for example. And so I wanted to um, kind of fill in that gap, uh, so to speak, in terms of looking at what what evidence do we have that resistance training can have any impact on sleep? Is it beneficial? Is it deleterious? Um, uh, and then I took, I kind of expanded later on in the discussion into other areas like timing of exercise and then how sleep affects resistance training, go in the other direction, like this kind of uh, corollary kind of relationship as well. So took it in a few different directions. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are like three, you know, two, two rather main sort of questions that you took on and answered. One is like, what effects, if any, does resistance training have on sleep? Like, is there a connection there as far as the ability to affect both sleep quantity or, or, or quality? And then the second part of this is like, how does sleep restriction, if, if present, affect resistance training performance? So let's start with the first one because, uh, yeah, people, uh, particularly in, the, in, well, in both, in both the medical and the sort of lay population, um, are under the impression that high-intensity exercise, which resistance training would fall under for the most part, has the potential to like negatively impact sleep. The idea is that you're very aroused and not in that way, but you're <laughs> very aroused uh, emotionally and, and cognitively to like have to perform during high intensity training, which would again include resistance training. So the idea is like that might impair sleep or somehow alter it. What sort of evidence did they find here? Because this was a systematic review. I forget the number of studies that they ended up reviewing, but I actually came across this this paper myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just as an example, I bet that if I asked most of my colleagues, like in medicine, for example, uh, uh, it, do you think that lifting weights is likely to have an impact on kind of sleep quality? Do you think it's likely to improve it? I bet we'd get a lot of shrugs or people who said, it might nah. have deleterious effects if I had to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think that many people are going to be like, yeah, it would improve sleep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if yeah. anything, they'd say, I don't know, or it's it probably, probably has the potential back. to harm. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad for your back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, like if you get sore, it's going to mess your sleep up. Or yeah. if it's a very hard, strenuous session, it's going to mess your sleep up because yeah. you got all this adrenaline going and yeah. how do you unwind from that? Yeah. 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 So basically the way they set this up, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with the way these kind of studies are designed, authors, when they do a systematic review, they set up initially like a set of search criteria. They're going to survey the literature 
uh, and pull as many papers as they can that fit these initial kind of uh, search parameters. And they have inclusion and exclusion criteria. In other words, specific criteria that allow them to kind of whittle down the initial kind of screened large uh, sample of studies into the ones that most uh, directly address the question they're trying to answer. So the way they set up their research question here was uh, uh, there's this concept in, in um, you know, when you're setting up a research study of a, a PICO question, P-I-C-O, and, and we use that to ask a very specific question. So what is the population that we're looking at? They want to look at human populations, really of any demographic. This would be where if you wanted to limit it to men or women or children or people with a particular medical condition, you could, but they wanted to keep it broad and look at basically humans of any demographic. With the I would be the intervention. They wanted to look at resistance training, which they defined as exercise in which the muscles work against an applied force or weight. They included both acute resistance training interventions, meaning like a couple sessions, um, as well as chronic resistance training, meaning you're, you're training over a longer period of time. And they didn't put any particular limitations on how the resistance training was set up in terms of exercise selection, intensity, volume, et cetera. But they did stratify the intensity into low, moderate, or high, higher being anything higher than 70% one RM um, uh, uh, intensity. Then the C in PICO, so you have your population, who you're looking at, what your intervention is, the resistance training, what you're comparing it against, uh, i.e. like a control group. So they wanted control stu uh, studies with control groups that could involve no intervention, no exercise, um, or, or any passive or active intervention that, that did not include resistance training. So they wanted to compare resistance training to either nothing or basically anything that's not resistance training um, in order to try to uh, ascertain whether there's any unique effect of resistance training. And the outcome, the O, uh, was any uh, objective or subjective validated tool that can be used to assess sleep, uh, daytime wakefulness or, or sleepiness, um, and a few other outcomes with respect to sleep quality and quantity. So that's the way that kind of the overall overarching question they wanted to answer in humans, performing resistance training compared to not performing resistance training, what effect is there on sleep quality, quantity using validated outcome measures? Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, when people like just read this at face value, they're like, oh, so they just, you know, looked for papers, tried to, tried, <clears throat> tried to identify like relevant ones and then uh, kind of, you know, wrote up a summary, which is, you know, a 10,000 foot view of what happened. But <laughs> just to put this in perspective, these authors found over 3,000 potentially eligible papers. It's like 3,300 or something, at which they reduced to 129 papers after they read the titles and the abstracts. So like, I definitely don't want that job just as yeah, an aside. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, and then from there, they whittled it down to 13 total studies uh, that comprised 650 to uh, participants, yeah. which so so just again, imagine pulling over three thousand studies, yeah, and you're just like, and then whittling it down to thirteen, just yeah. based on like, hey, does it fit all this criteria? Is it is does it actually answer the question or questions that we're specifically asking? Um, so yeah, they they did a pretty smash up job. Uh, to the first point. What would you say the, the they found with a relationship to the effect of resistance training on sleep uh, quality? So sleep quality would involve stuff like a subjective rating using a validated questionnaire like, hey, how good or bad was your sleep? Um, also stuff like sleep latency. So like how long did it take you to fall asleep? And uh, 
sleep efficiency, for example. So like you're in bed, but how much of that time are you actually spent sleeping? What, uh, what, what sort of impact do we have on, on sleep quality from resistance training? Yeah. So the one nice thing about the way they design, uh, the way they analyze the, the, uh, studies that they ultimately included was splitting them up into a few different categories. Um, they specifically broke them down into the, what the so-called acute resistance training studies, meaning studies that involved uh, an intervention, a resistance training intervention of like fewer than four sessions. So only a couple sessions of lifting to see it, whether it had any like immediate impact. And then they compared it against more chronic interventions where people were training over a longer period of time to see if like, con- you know, uh, consistent resistance training had any different uh, sort of effect on these things. And so in several of the more acute uh, uh, interventions, the short, the very, very short term ones, the findings were pretty variable and there really wasn't a super consistent uh, 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 kind of signal of benefit in any particular direction. And so I think there's a number of reasons why this ended up uh, coming out. Obviously, you know, there was a handful of the 13, only a, a couple of those were the acute, I think it was three of those papers studied acute resistance training interventions. Um, and so even those between those three, there was variability. One was low intensity, one was moderate intensity, one was high intensity, and they were all machine-based exercise uh, compared to not exercising. So you get a variety of kind of, you know, a reasonable variety of interventions uh, uh, and they're controlled uh uh, interventions as well, but there may just not be, you know, a big enough, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, number of, uh, subjects in a particular intervention, um, for that is that short term for us to be able to detect an effect because it's always harder to find those kind of things. But with that said, I would not be surprised if lifting, you know, going out and lifting for one or two sessions doesn't immediately have a dramatic impact on your sleep quality either. Because um, when we compare that to the remaining studies that looked at more chronic exercise interventions, meaning people were doing it more consistently over a period of time, we see a more significant uh, beneficial effects on sleep quantity, sleep quality. And this becomes even more significant when we restrict that to studies of older adults. So older adults seem to benefit more from this than younger adults, at least based on the data that they had in the included in this, uh, in this review. Uh, and they also found evidence that uh, higher frequencies of exercise. So the, the ones that included three times a week resistance training versus fewer were more likely to show uh, positive effects. Um, and then, of course, there seem to be bigger effects with kind of higher intensity interventions. Although the caveat there is that, of course, you know, there's not a, a, a controlling for like to overall training volume there either, such that the, you know, the question would be, can you make up for differences in intensity by training more at lower uh, intensities? We're not really sure about that, but it, it's pretty common that we see, you know, higher effect sizes for higher intensity interventions, you know, training well below 50%, uh, one RM, for example, versus over 70%, uh, un- uh, with the exception of the hypertrophy world where we can get similar effects as, as, as long as we're doing, you know, enough sets and, and reps in our training. So, um, that was kind of the main takeaways that, that we had for the effects of resistance training on sleep quality, whether we're looking at a short-term intervention, evidence was pretty mixed, longer-term interventions, more likely to be positive, particularly in older individuals, higher intensities who are training more frequently. So, and just to remind the listeners at home, when you say a positive effect, you basically mean sleep quality improved, yeah. meaning that the way that people rated their own sleep was better, the sleep latency, so how long it took for them to fall asleep was reduced, their sleep efficiency, the amount of time they spent in bed versus time that they were actually sleeping was reduced. So they were sleeping more in bed. (laughs) Um, Do you care to go out on a limb 
and provide like a mechanism for this? Did they mention that at all? Like, was it just they, you know, built up some sleep drive or, <laughs> or yeah. was it something else? Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about a specific, I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to be able to identify one particular mechanism. My guess is as with many of the other beneficial effects of exercise that we see um, on human physiology and pathophysiology is probably going to be a very multifactorial uh, kind of mechanism. So I, I would not hazard yeah. a guess there. <laughs> Probably not going to reduce it down to like one, you know, neurotransmitter or (laughs) physiological phenomenon. Yeah. It's not like, well, when you exercise, you release a little bit of, you know, melatonin or something like that builds up your sleep drive. And that's what it is. With respect to uh, sleep quantity, the total amount of time spent sleeping, uh, any insight there to what the data shows on that with respect to resistance training? Yeah. Overall, uh, smaller or less significant effects seen on quantity. And so I think that uh, part of this may be that sleep quantity may be more uh, uh, kind of a, a reflection of some lifestyle behaviors. In other words, like actually going to bed. Uh, yeah, like and things like, like that. how much time, sleep opportunity, <laughs> like how much right. time do you have to actually sleep? Yeah. yeah, versus, you know, once you're actually asleep, the quality of sleep that you get is to some extent, you know, uh, not something that you can actively control during that period of time. And so I think that what we can say more confidently is that sleep quality is likely to improve from this, whereas we're less confident that uh, this is going to have, you know, automatic effects on its own on sleep quantity, unless you undertake behavioral interventions to say, maybe go to bed a little earlier or uh, something like that. Yeah, which it, which brings uh, up another point that I think is important, that insomnia, a clinical diagnosis based on uh, some validated sort of tools that you use to sort of assess somebody's sleep um, is effectively when people have trouble sleeping, given ample opportunity to sleep and then then have symptoms like daytime sleepiness, reduced cognitive capacity, uh, and, you know, just the, they're tired during the day, to put it, to put it simply. Um, whereas sleep restriction is not always indicative of uh, just not, it's not always due to insomnia. You might just not have sleep enough sleep opportunity to actually get the amount of sleep that you need in. So that's not insomnia. That's just reduction in sleep opportunity, and therefore you have sleep restriction. So two different things going on there. Um, moving to the second question, the effect of sleep on resistance training. Did you were there any strong findings there with respect to like sleep amount and how that affected performance in resistance training sessions? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that there were super strong uh, uh, findings there. I think that, you know, the paper that I drew this from is from from uh, Knowles, K-N-O-W-E-S, and their colleagues in 2018. They did a systematic review on this topic, and they found um, uh, they, they ended up f- uh, pulling about 17 studies, but they were like moderate to weak in quality. So I wouldn't say that this is particularly strong evidence base here. That what they tended to do in a lot of these studies was, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different interventions, whether they restricted people's sleep, for example, by delaying their bedtime, making them stay up late, waking them up early in the morning, or just like total sleep deprivation, like making them, you know, pull an all-nighter, for example. Um, and what what seemed to emerge from this, that, or what they what they uh, uh, drew from these, these data sets was that uh, it seemed that if you have kind of multiple sequential nights of sleep restriction... Um, or if you have a very early awakening and you've been awake for like much more than 12 hours, then those scenarios may, uh, are more likely to impair like your strength performance in a, in a, a training or performance context. 
with respect to a single night of sleep deprivation, like if you just have one, you know, very bad night of sleep or, or um, you know, an all-nighter or something like that, there, there didn't seem to be quite as strong of evidence uh, from that standpoint pointing at um, uh, an impairment in strength performance. So this is kind of interesting in that, you know, we see and work with a lot of people who might catastrophize one bad night of sleep and say that their training session is going to be totally ruined as a result of it. Whereas, you know, maybe that's not, that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Now, if you're having night after night after night of, you know, impaired or restricted sleep, um, you know, then, then we're in a different scenario where we want to really work on that some more, but, um, having a one-off, you know, here and there bad night of sleep, not unlike when people experience back pain, I would probably frame it as, Hey, that's a, that's a part of life. And we're going <laughs> to go out and train anyway and not expect things to be different until or unless proven otherwise. Yeah. It's just that it, it seems like the overall trend of sleep quality and quantity are more indicative of how it's, uh, what its effect is going to be on your performance potential. Whereas the acute, uh, sort of effect is variable and can be overcome using different strategies such as caffeine such as potentially death metal if you're into that or other sort of uh, things that would sort of arouse you or 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 improve your uh uh, sort of ability to perform um i will say this and you can weigh in on this as well like because people are like you know i mentioned the word caffeine and people are cool (laughs) you're just telling us to like put a bandaid on this with caffeine if i didn't sleep well the night before it's like well not necessarily you don't have to use caffeine to train we know that there's a uh ergogenic potential there or performance improving potential for caffeine with a wide variety of different doses uh depending on a person's sensitivity and you know naivety or previous exposure to caffeine the current range is like three to nine milligrams of caffeine per kilogram body weight uh about 30 minutes prior to exercise. Um, so if the training session is important, the performance in the training session in particular is perform is important, then maybe you want to use caffeine if you didn't sleep that well the night before, or even if you did sleep well the night before and the performance is still important, you know, maybe you use that, but for a session that's not where the performance is not really that important, which I would argue that should be most of your training sessions. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then you you don't need to necessarily worry about, well, what if I don't squat as much? What if I don't deadlift as much? What if I don't press as much? What if I don't run as far? It's like, well, you know, it's sometimes it do be like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't know that I would try to use strategies all the time to uh, improve your performance for a given session. If every session is very, very important, then no sessions are important. See how there that works. Go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's how also, I live my life. Right, right. Yeah, no sessions are important. Um, <laughs> just as an aside, the current FDA guidelines suggest uh, a dose of about 400 milligrams of caffeine per day as like the safe limit, meaning that there's very few, if any, uh, associated side, you know, negative side effects of that caffeine intake. Um, that's about five cups of coffee, or like. Uh, how many monsters is that? That's three, maybe monsters or something like that. Obviously this depends on, (laughs) yeah, this depends on, uh, a person's again, caffeine sensitivity, previous exposure, et cetera. So, you know, caveat emptor, uh, (laughs) the, the thing is, I, I don't know if you had anything else to add for the caffeine. Like, would you recommend that people use that regularly as a strategy on nights that they're, let's say they work a night shift or that they're, you know, 
Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would point out is, is the dosage question here. Um, you know, I have had obviously periods of time where I was doing, you know, 28 hour calls or, or working nights or whatever, and I would still want to train. And yeah, if I got home and took a nap and wanted to train, I would have a cup of coffee, but having a cup of coffee is a different deal than having 500 milligrams of caffeine 30 minutes before I train. So I view that that was just a lifestyle habit for me as something I want to do when I, when I got up. Um, but that's different than like the ergogenic dosing. So I think that's important to differentiate for people. Um, if the training session is really, really important, which again, like if the training session is that important, um, you, you know, you have to really be confident in that with respect to maybe timing to a competition or something like that. But I agree most training sessions in and of themselves are not crucially important as far as your immediate performance that day that you need to overwhelm your system with uh, kind of ergogenic aids and stimulants to, to overcome uh, to overcome a, a night of poor sleep like that. Yeah. And if you find that the, that you do have important training sessions that are where your sleep is consistently disrupted prior to them because you're anxious about the training sessions, uh, I would, we would recommend behavioral change strategies to try to mitigate that. So, yeah, or maybe just like get off the Texas method. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, the, the, the take home, uh, from this, I, I think with respect to the training modifications or training, you know, thoughts about programming, et cetera, is, is, is that the idea is you're trying to apply the correct training stimulus given your level of preparedness to train on a given day. And that waxes and wanes, it ebbs and flows. And, you know, having a way to auto-regulate is important. So just because you didn't sleep very well on, on a particular night doesn't mean that you're, you know, going to perform terribly. Um, but it's nice to have a plan B in mind in case, you know, you find out during your warmups that everything is bone crushingly heavy. But uh, yeah, it doesn't always work out like that. As Because, you know, it's funny, I've had the best training of my life when I'm working nights and I have sleep restricted. Like it's just, if I, if I could figure out a way now in my, uh, post-medical training life to like have a night shift, <laughs> I think, I think my training would take off. I don't yeah. know why, but, uh, that's, that's just what's going on. Um, cool. So definitely check out this month's research review. Austin really went into, uh, some, some great, uh, into some great depth on, on these issues. And uh, if you're interested, you should check it out. You can head over to our website, barbellmedicine.com. Check out the research review. You can subscribe, get 50% off your first month by using the code research at checkout. And if you're on the fence, you're like, hmm, I don't know, guys. Uh, you can get two free issues. The January 2020 and January 2019 issues are both free 99. Uh, and if you like what you're reading or the type of information that you're reading, well, subscribe. Join the other subscribers. Join us. And every month we'll uh, – We'll give you some some nuance in your in right to your inbox in a uh, very accessible way. So that's cool. Let's flip the script now. You're now the most handsome doctor in North America. I'm I've been relegated second, just like that. Although I will say I got a haircut today, so it's going to be tough for you. It's yeah. going to be tough for you to overcome this. Yeah, Lorraine had to trim my hair uh, last week, so I'm assume you know. I'm not topping that at the moment, but wait, you got a COVID cut. You got a quarantine cut. <laughs> it, was a, it was a trim, but yeah, <laughs> I assume that she just shaved your head. 
Like you just put a <laughs> number four guard on there and just, you're just like, do with it yeah. what you will. Yeah. Soon it's going to be problematic walking around the military hospital with like a messy mop on, on my head, but I'll figure something out. <laughs> well, so would it be worse to have like a shaved head? Like you just, you know, came back <laughs> like <laughs> you're now that people mistake you for like a, a military physician yeah. or yeah. Like when I was in, when I did my, uh, I did two, uh, rotations at the military hospital and I had a beard, right? Like a full on beard. Everyone's confused. <laughs> Everyone's very confused. They're like, wait, are you a doctor and an operator? Like, are you? And I was like, no, 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 I'm much, much worse. <laughs> I'm neither. <laughs> I, I'm just a civilian and a medical student. I'm like the worst. Yeah. So anyway, all right, let's flip it. You're, you're now the host. All right. What did you, what was this, uh, the study that you looked at this month? Yeah. So I went back a decade uh, because the, the, the title of my article is losing weight in your sleep. Um, and the article, uh, that I reviewed is titled insufficient sleep undermines dietary efforts to reduce adiposity by, uh, Ned, Ned, Ooh, Ned Elcheva. And this was from 2010. And the reason why I picked this article is because there is a, the lot of, mm, grumblings and talk about how, sleep restriction. So the reduced either opportunity to sleep or insomnia, um, can negatively affect weight loss outcomes. And you see this all the time, particularly in the, the, the physique community where they're, they're like, yeah, I was prepping for this show or I was prepping for this, you know, photo shoot and I wasn't sleeping very well and my weight loss just stopped, you know? And so, or this idea, like if you're not sleeping enough, you're not going to lose weight. And so I was like, well, let's go into this and, and check it out. And, and there's some other additional like background data in the academic uh, 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 sphere where they're talking about sleep restriction or reduced amount of sleep um, has been linked to obesity, increased risk of obesity. So it's like, let's take a look at this. So this study was cool. I liked it because it was very, it was done in a very controlled environment. And so this is a metabolic ward study where effectively they admit the subjects that they're studying into a hospital or laboratory or other research setting. They keep them under lock and key. And they, in this case, they were able to feed them exacting amounts of food. So effectively they would give them a tray uh, of, you know, X amount of calories and a particular amount of macros and say, eat this. And whatever they didn't eat, they subtracted from their total daily intake. And so they were able to monitor like and, and control the intake of food. And since these people didn't leave the lab for two weeks, they were able to monitor how active they were on average and like what else they did and how much they slept. They were able to control everything. This is different than doing a, a free living study where effectively you tell people to do something and hope that they adhere to it at home. <laughs> Which With, never happens. Yeah, because again, They're in general, most meals. people... Yeah, yeah. Most people underestimate how much food that they actually eat and overestimate how much activity they have. And so the data gets less and less accurate and then less and less useful when you're really trying to answer a specific question. In this case, like how does sleep affect weight loss? So in any case, they uh, basically posted a an ad in the newspaper, which shows you that this is 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> they recruited people to the University of Chicago's uh, lab, sleep lab to uh, basically feed them particular amount of calories, which was 90% of their uh, uh, resting en energy expenditure. So we know that they should lose weight. 
because it's 90% of the resting energy expenditure, which they tested in the lab. They did that for two weeks under two different conditions. Condition one is when they were allowed to sleep uh, a little over eight hours per night. And condition number two, which was another two-week study period, they were only allowed to sleep five and a half hours per night. So the idea was uh, enough sleep in one condition or restricted sleep in the other condition? And, and were there any weight loss differences, body composition differences, or differences in other sort of uh, uh, metabolic or neuro neurological, uh, uh, neuroendocrine sort of uh, markers? This was and while they were so, all under the same calorie deficit, just to reiterate that. Yeah, exactly. So the, they again, they measured exactly what their resting energy expenditure was prior to each of these trials. And then at the end of each trial, they like validated it using this uh, some pretty fancy uh, techniques, which I describe in this uh, research review. Uh, and all of these people were generally healthy. None of them had any sleep problems. They, they used a battery of different tests to sort of assess this. None of them had any mood disorders. Again, they used a battery of different tests to identify like, were they depressed? Were they anxious, et cetera? None of them uh, uh, used uh, more than 300 milligrams of caffeine uh, per day. None of them drank alcohol or smoked, cig- uh, or smoked cigarettes or used any sort of medications that would affect their sleep. So effectively as controlled as you can get. And so what they found was that both groups, so the people who were sleep restricted versus the people who had uh, the you know eight and a half hours of sleep per night, they lost the same amount of weight in two weeks. They both lost about three kilograms which is what you'd expect with people who were had to maintain a calorie deficit. They had to do it. So they lost the same amount of weight. The interesting thing was the um, body composition changes were wildly different. So in general, the folks who slept eight hours, eight and a half hours per night were allowed to sleep that much. Um, On average, I think they slept like 7.7 hours per night. This was monitored using uh, a sleep lab uh, hardware and software. So effectively they hook people up to a machine that monitors like, are you sleeping or not? Nah? It's like, that's what you want on your dad when they're, <laughs> they're <laughs> sitting in the lazy boy. <laughs> I'm just resting my eyes. It's like, right. no, dad. <laughs> this machine's telling you if you're sleeping or not. Um, so the body composition changes were, were wildly different. So the people who were able to sleep, uh, about eight, eight and a half hours per night, uh, about half the weight they lost was pure body fat. And the other half was lean body mass. Whereas the people who were on sleep restricted lost only about 25% body fat. Uh, 25% of the weight that they lost was body fat and 75% of the weight they lost was lean body mass. So substantially different. This is statistically significant. Obviously that's clinically significant. Um, you know, and, uh, they were trying to figure out, well, look, they were on the same calorie deficit. Like why did this happen? Um, and so a few interesting things happened. So one, um, they found that again, the amount of calories they were consuming were the same, but they found, uh, two, uh, three big differences. One is that a hormone called leptin, which is uh, a hormone reduced released by the body fat. Usually the more body fat you have, the more leptin you have floating around, um, so individuals with excess body fat have a lot of leptin floating around. Um, and then individuals who are lean have less leptin floating around. So how this works in weight loss is like when you lose body fat, your leptin levels go down. And because leptin levels go down, uh, you end up getting, uh, this signal to like eat more, to replace, restore, to preserve, um, that fat mass because the body's 
you know, that's just one of its homeostatic uh, mechanisms to like make sure you're not losing too much body fat. Uh, kind of counterintuitive, but that happens. In any case, they found that individuals who were sleep restricted, their leptin levels uh, went up a little bit higher than the individuals who had uh, eight hours were able to sleep longer. Additionally, another hormone, ghrelin, it's a hormone produced uh, mainly by uh, cells in the stomach uh, in response to fasting and weight loss. So when you're between meals, your ghrelin levels go up. When you lose weight, ghrelin levels go up, affectionately known as the hunger hormone. So the individuals who are on sleep restricted, their ghrelin levels went way up compared to the individuals uh, who were sleeping eight hours a night. So again, potentially causing some differences there. The other thing that ghrelin can do is actually shift some of the metabolic machinery to prefer or to um, increase the rate of fat storage and decrease the amount of fat being liberated for use for fuel. So those are two of the potential mechanisms that uh, are at play here. The other thing they saw is they actually measured their respiratory quotient, which is, uh, uh, to put it simply, they hook people up to this mouthpiece. It's like a respirator. You breathe into it and uh, it, it tells you how much oxygen is being consumed and how much c carbon dioxide is being produced. And through uh, some software and some fancy math, um, it basically tells you like, hey, are you burning mostly carbohydrates, protein, or fat. In any case, the uh, individuals who were on a sleep-restricted diet had a much lower respiratory quotient, uh, whereas the individuals who were able to sleep eight and a half hours per night had respiratory quotients much higher. So effectively, the individuals who were sleep-restricted, not only did they have a propensity to store more fat, liberate less of it for use for fuel, they were also burning less fat, which is exactly what the results show. They show that they, on average, did not reduce body fat as much. And uh, they lost more lean body mass. So what's the take home? Take home is that while a calorie deficit is a calorie deficit and that's going to cause weight loss, if you're sleep restricted, you might not lose as much body fat, which is something we're really trying to do when we combat, uh, when trying to combat obesity. So effectively, the issue with obesity is carrying too much body fat. And so while we advise weight loss in those situations, if you're not actually losing body fat, you're not necessarily getting all the health benefits associated with weight loss there. Uh, so being in a sleep-restricted state is, is no bueno, uh, to quote uh, doctor of Texan methods, Tom Capitelli. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty interesting. I go into a lot more of the testing and how they kind of um, came up with these uh, different uh, protocols. And it was a pretty cool study. What I don't like about this study are, are two things. Thing one, they didn't track physical activity while they were in the lab, they could have easily put like a pedometer or some other sort of like wearable tech. This is done in 2010. So there's stuff that was out there um, where they could actually track activity, uh, but they didn't. They were th most, all these people, none of them could have exercised, had like been like a chronic exerciser before they got involved in the study. So they were, they said they were sedentary doing like home office type work while they were in the lab for the two weeks. Um, so they weren't exercising, but you know, some people might have been moving around more than others. And we have pretty good data uh, that even endurance exercise or like moderate intensity aerobic activity, which is like not that strenuous, yeah. can preserve a substantial amount of lean body mass. So it's possible that individuals who were sleeping eight and a half hours per night, eight hours per night, were actually a little bit more active um, than the individuals who were sleep restricted. 
The other thing that I don't like about this study is that they didn't replicate it <laughs> because this is the only study like this that was done ever. There's no other study like this. There's no – that's why I picked one from 2010. There's not one that was done in 2018, 2019, 2020. <laughs> so – and to me, this seems like such an important clinical question. Like, what is the effect of sleep on obesity? Yeah. Like, it should have been replicated or uh, at least had, had some some more sort of uh, mechanistic investigation. Like, well, why does this happen? And uh, it just doesn't exist. We have ample lines of evidence – multiple meta-analyses and systematic reviews showing that reduced that sleep restriction is associated with an increased risk of obesity substantially but as far as why that happens we don't have this is it this is the only study out there on this so i'll be uh looking forward to reading further research about this if and when somebody does it uh one other gripe and uh you can weigh in on this too. I don't know if you saw this. They, they measured reverse T3 amongst of another yeah, uh, was, bunch of different hormones. That was silly. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing that people talk about also is like, oh, if you're losing weight, your thyroid can get, you know, or if you're missing sleep, your thyroid hormone levels might be off. So they didn't find that at all. They measured the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is a hormone that comes from the hypothalamus, stimulates the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone. That didn't go down or change. They measured free thyroxins, the actual uh, output of thyroid hormone by the thyroid gland. That didn't change with weight loss or in sleep, either the sleep restricted or the the eight hours of sleep per night state. So that didn't change. And then they measured reverse T3, which I'm like, why did you do this? <laughs> because that has no clinical utility in nearly any set, like in any situation. Uh yeah. They also measure growth hormones. It's the same th way I feel about that. Like, why did you measure this? This is stupid. Yeah. But other than that, pretty cool study, pretty important clinical question. Yeah. I think I agree that, you know, we're unlikely to pin the, pin the answer here down on similarly on one specific thing. You know, in, in other words, if the question is, you know, what, how does sleep uh, restriction uh, uh, contribute to increased risk of obesity? It's not going to be like, oh, it's just because your ghrelin goes up. It's the, you know, that one thing. It's never going to be that simple. I do think the activity question is one that's very interesting because we know, or at least, you know, I've, we've talked about this before as far as how, uh, uh, the like in a dieting phase, for example, a lot of your non-exercise activity, thermogenesis tends to decrease. You, you spontaneously do less things. It's like your, your brain, your hypothalamus, uh, whatever complex mechanisms result in the emergence of like human motivation to get up and do something, those are like turned down in those kind of contexts. So your activity tends to spontaneously decrease while you have all these other counter regulatory mechanisms like ghrelin, like leptin changes, things like that, that tend to promote increases in appetite, food seeking behavior. So yeah, you know, that's part of why we view obesity as a chronic disease. It's something that is uh, very challenging for a lot of folks to, to deal with because, you know, your body is quite literally kind of battling you uh, uh, to, to restore back what you're trying to lose along the way. And so, you know, when we're working with people, sleep in just about every clinical situation, it has relevance as far as their health. You know, we're interested in their sleep if their blood pressure is high. We're interested in their sleep if their waist circumference or their body fat is elevated. We're interested in their sleep if they have pain issues, as Michael talked about a little bit. Um, and so it plays a role in all these different things, even if that specific role is complex and multifactorial, it deserves a lot more attention than it typically gets, I think. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and, you know, 
I know people are listening to this. are like, wait, even the people with the eight hours of sleep per night, they lost 50%. 50% of the weight they lost was lean body mass. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't think it was that dire. It's like, well, it's they not. weren't. It, well, <laughs> yeah. one, it's not. And then two, they weren't training. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not because they weren't training. If you're training, it's going to be better. Yeah, so on the average that you're going to find in the literature is about 75-25, meaning that 75% of the weight you lose is fat mass and 25% of the weight you lose is lean body mass. That's pretty much what you see across the board on average with respect to like weight loss uh, when individuals are eating uh, a diet that has ample amounts of protein, which is much lower than you think, and our resistance training. Um, you can kind of tilt the scales by bumping your protein up a little bit and resistance training a little bit more, but... Um, yeah, I would have loved to see the physical activity being tracked. And the final thing I'll say about this paper, particularly my review on it, is that we are moving away from using the term obesity. We're moving away from it. This is a few years in the making. The American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists and other endocrinology uh, professional associations nationally and internationally have made a push for replacing the term obesity with adiposity-related chronic disease. And the idea is that you get this sort of stigma when you call somebody obese or say an obese individual or an overweight individual like that, you know, is their identity and that has a negative connotation to it. Um, whereas you just say an, you know, an individual with adiposity-related chronic disease, which talks about the pathogenesis. So why do they have this disease? Well, it's adiposity-related you know, and it's, there's less stigma there. So word to the wise, if you're in the clinical sort of realm or you deal with uh, the public with respect to behavioral change um, and weight loss, let's, let's flip the script. Let's stop calling it obesity. We'll call it adiposity related chronic, chronic disease. Yeah. I mean, the language around this is changing in a lot of contexts um, and and it's difficult to break away from when we've been trained to converse in a particular way. But um, even among you know some of the folks I work with, even I think in like one or two spots in this article, I had to tweak the language a little bit um, to make it say, even if we're going to use the word, even to the extent, you know, obviously obesity, the word is not going to go anywhere. It's going to remain in the common lexicon for a long time. But even if we could just make the switch to, you know, people with obesity rather than obese people, uh, I think is an important distinction in the same way that, you know, other, other disease states can become labels, uh, for people trying to flip that and people with a particular condition rather than the other way around. So I love it. Cool. All right. Let's see what our other reviewers had to have to say about the research review this month. All right, we're back with Dr. Derek Miles, physical therapist at Stanford Children's, although not for long because you're moving. Uh, also, all-around cool guy and uh, excellent Instagram story user. If you don't follow Derek underscore Barbell Medicine, you got to do it. N not only for his cooking with adhesion series, but dude just drop dudes dropping knowledge bombs in his Instagram story on a regular. Derek, what's going on, man? How's it going, man? I'm, I'm doing well. So this month you reviewed an article by Vander Linden et al. It's 2020. It's a new paper called The Effects of Physical Activity Programs on Sleep Outcomes in Older Adults, a Systematic Review. And I just got to give you a hats off to the title that you came up with, uh, Got to Get Up to Lay Down. I just feel like if there's a new like pop sensation, it's going to be this. Got to get up to lay down. I, I, for my money, this is excellent. Um, 
<laughs> I assume that this study looked at exercise and its effect on sleep in the elderly population, but uh, there's probably some nuance there. So can you tell the listeners at home what, what this paper actually checked out? Well, it certainly looked at the effect of physical activity and I feel that that distinction between exercise and physical activity is really important in this instance because what really is glaringly apparent is how sedentary the older population is in general, or actually even you can take it to the American population at large. And things that we would consider exercise uh, to the, the lay trainer or therapist would likely far exceed any dosing that these studies were doing. One of them actually involved walking on a treadmill for an hour, three times a week. So we're not talking about, you know, setting new PRs for things that people are going to brag about doing, but really the correlation between increased physical activity and sleep was relatively strong to where if you could get this population more active, a lot of the metrics of their sleep, sleep quality and quantity both improved. Got it. So, would since this, it's a systematic review, um, I imagine there was a large variance in what sort of physical activity was being applied to the study groups. So, did this just run the gamut from like, hey, you're going to walk, you know, forty five minutes, thirty minutes, uh, a few times a week on a treadmill, uh, up to like full on resistance training, or were they pretty similar? Well, just from a just exercise dosing standpoint, I highly doubt anything would have really qualified as strenuous. Uh, a lot of it would certainly qualify in the light activity level. Um, some were Pilates for half an hour, yoga. One, they actually refer to as light calisthenics and stretching. So yeah. we're not talking about like things where we're going to be hitting RPE 8 and breaking a sweat along the way. Yeah. So uh, for the listeners at home, when we're, we look at like population-based studies on physical inactivity, uh, which is something I've been looking at a lot recently, the definition for like physical inactivity is failing to get 600 met minutes of physical activity per week. And uh, how that sort of correlates to the current physical activity guidelines, which are to engage in aerobic training for 150 to 300 minutes at a moderate intensity uh, each week, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity activity per week, and to uh, do resistance training uh, at least twice per week. Um, so the way that the 600 met minutes correlates is that you pick an activity um, that has a certain amount of metabolic equivalents that, uh, that you use to do it. So like Walking for a brisk walk is like 3.3 mets um, for an individual. And if you did that for 100 minutes, that would be 330 met minutes. Um, so effectively, if someone is not meeting the 600 met minutes per week, they're not meeting the aerobic guidelines, but they don't actually assess resistance training um, at all, as far as like who's hitting the, getting the guideline, uh, recommended minimum or not. So how this plays out in the United States, for example, about 40% of the population self-reports that they're meeting the aerobic training guidelines. So they're getting at least that 600 met minutes per week, um, self-reporting, um, less than half of them, less than half of those individuals who are getting the 600 met minutes are also getting in the resistance training. So we're at 20%. And what's worse is when you strap a fancy Fitbit to these people and you actually monitor like, hey, 
how many of you guys are actually meeting these physical activity guideline recommendations, it goes down even further to about 10%. So if you're, yeah, yeah, depending on who you're reading. So it's, it's not like, look, not a lot of people are exercising up to the physical activity guideline minimums, minimums. So yeah, I assume that these, the, the exercises used the training protocols used in these studies are, are reflective of that. <laughs> in any case, uh, what what's the overall effect that they actually saw for um, individuals participating, older individuals participating in physical activity and its effect on sleep? Well, so a lot of this kind of is predicated on how they measure the outcomes. And as I'm sure listeners for the podcast are going to hear this month, there are a lot of outcomes we discuss when it comes to sleep. The overall heuristic of it was if you could get these individuals more active, there were was improvements in metrics of sleep quality, so self-reported uh, sleep quality, as well as, uh, depending on the study, some quantitative metrics. And you could have a little bit of discussion about, you know, when you're tracking 10 outcomes and you have a positive effect on three, is that really a true signal? But just across the board, there did seem to be a, a relationship between increasing physical activity and improved sleep. So how, how long were these studies that were in, included in the systematic review? Were they like acute studies where they would have people exercise like once or twice and then ask them or give them questionnaires about their sleep quality and quantity? Or were these more chronic studies like they were exercising for weeks or months um, and then getting some data feedback? Most of the studies included were at least three months and surprise, surprise, there does seem to be a dose response curve to where the, if you are physically active longer, it does improve sleep more over the long term. Um, there was actually one study where they took some nursing home residents and had half of them increase physical activity and the other half didn't. And what they found is sleep metrics in the group that was more active improved while those who just remained inactive declined. But then they followed up three months after the cessation of the intervention. And what they found was just because you were active over that point, there was a decline during that washout three months. So it is something that does need to be consistent throughout the lifespan. And it's not just, you know, doing three months of sleep will, or three months of physical activity will help you sleep better over the subsequent nine months. Yeah. If you don't use it, you lose it. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I guess. And did any of the studies that, you know, look at resistance training specifically, or was it all just generalized physical activity? So nothing in this cohort would have directly qualified as resistance training. Um, and I, I think by and large, if you really look at it from where research has evolved, it's only been in the last three or four years that we've really had things like the lift more trial and a lot of the more resistance oriented uh, randomized control trials really coming out. So my guess would be probably over the next four or five years, we're going to start seeing a lot more of these show up in the literature. Yeah. Yeah. Austin did a, another uh, systematic review on how resistance training affected sleep. And it looked like as far as sleep quality goes, that the longer the people were engaging in resistance training, like as far as how consistent they'd been with it, the better the effect was. So it's no surprise to me that seeing individuals engage in physical activity improves their, their sleep quality. Did Was there any discussion of like a potential mechanism as far as like how physical activity actually improved sleep quality? There wasn't in this particular paper. Most things were just 
And if you think about it from the study design, this is exactly how they really should have hypothesized on their results because there wasn't any mechanisms that were explicitly explored in the study. So they just did the good thing and said that increasing physical activity improved sleep outcomes. And I think you can take it a little bit of a step further where there it's we tend to think of it in terms of this particular study as increasing physical activity and improved sleep quality and quantity, but it's much more of a cyclic relationship to where if you start getting better sleep, then you also start to feel more capable of being active. And the study does touch on some of the components of sleep hygiene. And one of the big recommendations there is of course, getting regular exercise, but also having other habits such as, not uh, drinking alcohol to excess and staying off of uh, off of stimulants, as it were, especially later in the day, tend to help people out as well. Um, but overall, it really, it, it's common sense. And I understand that phrase has been a little bit denigrated in current uh, society, but that if we can get people more active, it does really improve a lot of outcomes. And there's actually been some studies looking at kind of the cost of physical inactivity throughout the lifespan. And if we could just get people to meet these baseline physical activity guidelines, I would be willing to bet that we would have a lot of health cost savings and a lot of the comorbidities we see later in life would start to decrease as well. And, you know, this study was on the older population. And if you look at the other benefits of physical activity, uh, it, in, it decreases the risk of sarcopenia. You know, it decreases fall risk. Uh, we don't have the same rate of cardiometabolic diseases in individuals that are more active. Just overall being more active helps people age better. And yeah. that really should be what the message is. And I think sometimes we get a little bit lost in our messaging by trying to turn that physical activity into exercise. Um, because seeing it as something that has to be done and people even need to think about the fact of like, Hey, you want to go play with your grandkids. You need to be able to get in the positions to get down and pick them up off the ground. You need to be able to run around with them for 30 minutes to an hour. And, you know, that still is physical activity to these individuals. And, you know, by the Milo of Croton, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, like the kids keep getting bigger. So you're getting progressive overload. If you're picking your grandkids up enough, just pick up junior for three sets of eight and see what the <laughs> RP is. Right. Well, it, you know, it, this conversation is in stark contrast to other conversations that we've had with both other professionals. And then, you know, that we see happening in the social media sphere where people are arguing about the best exercises or the best technique for these exercises and this, that, and the other. And it's like, that's the wrong conversation for the broad population. Like, yes. and, and, and because a lot of the individuals having those conversations have large reaches, it's the, you know, we would advise probably not spending a lot of time on those conversations without very specific, uh, careful sort of phrasing because it's like if you have somebody who's not physically active right now or is not meeting the minimums and, you know, they, they see something like, oh, this particular exercise is dangerous or this particular exercise is not good, uh, you know, that's just an additional barrier that we're building. 
And uh, a lot of that stuff's probably not intentional. I don't think people are out there maliciously or nefariously trying to hurt people, but I see it as a huge wasted waste of opportunity that rather than just promoting physical activity, we're, we're trying to like silo it, you know, and silo this knowledge. And it's like, no, this is, you know, you have to jump through all these hoops just to, just to start exercising. It's like, nope, you could literally do whatever you want. Start today, go, because there's so many potential benefits. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say about this before I, I'll ask you a final question. The reason we harp on this stuff all the time is because it seems like there's a relatively f- few amount of people that we need to actually kind of give this information to or counsel this informa- counsel folks on this information to get them to actually change the behavior. The number needed to treat for physical activity, meaning to, to get somebody to start exercising and getting up to meeting these, these guideline minimums is 12, meaning that we need to talk to 12 people, 12 inact, previously inactive people to get them to start exercising. That's a low number. That's a really low number needed to treat. So we're going to keep shouting this stuff and trying to get people to stop wasting time talking about, you know, t- stop wasting time on useless details and try to get more people active. Um, with respect to this study that you actually uh, that you reviewed this month, um, if you were going to say something to, because we have a lot of uh, professionals that that actually listen to this podcast, um, probably a higher percentage than, than other podcasts, I, I would assume. Do you think that it's within the purview of a physical therapist or other sort of health professional who's not a physician to actually bring up sleep and, and, and physical activity? Do you think that's, that's uh, something they should be doing? Absolutely. Especially when you're starting to talk about metrics, like I know Michael reviewed a, a pain study this month, which it's Mike, so it was a pain study, of course. But <laughs> it's it's so imperative that we seek to find these high yield outcomes. And if you look at things like increasing physical activity, or you know, not having a six p.m. cup of coffee or carafe of coffee, and improving your sleep, like these metrics have very substantial. I mean, there's, if you read enough literature, you know, there's not a lot that we can say with a high degree of certainty, but it is increasingly obvious that if we can get individuals more active and improve their sleep hygiene, we decrease the risk of a lot of things that we consider negative outcomes later in life. Yep. Yeah. If we could just get more people exercising, we'd be, we'd be doing some good here. So Dr. Derek Miles, thank you so much for contributing this month to our research review. And thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, last but not least, we're with Dr. Michael Ray. And no surprise this month for the May Barbell Medicine Research Review, he looked at sleep and the effect of it on pain. Go figure. Uh, the article you reviewed is Chronic Pain and Sleep Disturbances, a Pragmatic Review of Their Relationships, Comorbidities, and Treatments by Husak et al., 2020. Uh, Mike, you know, did you think about expanding your horizons <laughs> and like picking something else, or was it you knew it was always going to be pain? I think I'm just like stuck forever uh, in this loop of like trying to better understand, especially persistent pain, like just trying to figure things out. Yeah. And I, it's just, I think at some point you'll eventually 
have so much have like amassed so much uh, uh, sort of knowledge on the subject that you'll you'll even start diving deeper into like tangentially related fields like it's like you're like well this isn't directly related to pain but it'll help me understand this a little bit better and then it, it, it at the end you'll just be like shrug emoji we don't know because it's super complicated that's right. kind of where i've <laughs> that's yeah. that's how that's what happens with expertise folks. right so I've, I've drifted into like consciousness at this point i'm like oh if we solve pain we'll solve consciousness and yeah it gets interesting <laughs> yeah yeah philosophical arguments sometimes scare me um okay so this was a review a pragmatic review so it wasn't a systematic review it wasn't a meta-analysis per Correct. se but effectively they they just pulled a bunch of papers looking at sleep and pain and then wrote a review or what happened? yeah exactly um and they i don't know that they can run i mean they could have at least tried i guess and that was one of my i talked about that as a limitation of the paper is without a meta-analysis we can't really look at the true efficacy of these interventions so what i did is pulled a lot of their included studies the especially ones that were more recent and with larger sample sizes and then went through the methodology of the papers uh, and then i just kind of talk about them throughout this write-up for this month okay uh so when they're looking at uh sleep disturbances are they looking at both like sleep restriction like the reduced opportunity to sleep and then also like clinical like insomnia because those are you know slightly different uh although some sometimes sleep restriction and insomnia go together but not always are, are, do they separate yeah. it based on that or are they just talking about people who sleep less have x effect on chronic pain Sort of. So they excluded anything that was like directly and intentionally restricting sleep to see its effects on folks. So those were excluded, but they were looking at like DSM-5 diagnosable insomnia. But then they also broadened that out to sleep disturbances, which is like polysomnia and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it's difficult to define. It seems like it's, it's broadly defined uh, throughout the field a bit differently based on the authorship. So that could just be like your sleep quality and quantity are being subjectively reported as declined. Yeah. Yeah. So effectively a lot of the validated questionnaires on sleep quality require the patient to respond like, Hey, you know, on average, how well rested do you feel when you wake up? How many times did you wake up per night? Even though you didn't have the person in a sleep lab monitoring them like, Oh, this is how many times they, you know, actually came out of deep sleep or exactly. any sort of actual sleep. Yeah. So that's just, that's part of the field. So, all right, broad strokes here. If you had to summarize the overall effect on sleep disturbances and its effect on pain, what, what would you tell somebody? Uh, it's definitely, uh, for me, like the big takeaway point was it's something I'm going to be more vigilant about questioning, uh, and especially in folks that are presenting with like persistent, long lasting pain, um, because it, there does appear to be a bi-directional relationship, meaning pain influences sleep quality and quantity and sleep influences pain, uh, persistency. So specifically like it does appear linked to increasing, uh, pain with intensity and, and severity and duration. So if you're having like sleep disturbances, but then on the flip side, if you're constantly dealing with pain, it could also lead to sleep disturbances. Right. Like there's like a bi-directionality kind of thing there. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you, how do you plan on, I guess, sussing that out as part of like a clinical practice type thing? You know, you're going to, you're just asking people yeah. about their sleep or, or you what's could, going on? You could definitely get like very nuanced with this. Uh, for me, like just from a pragmatic standpoint, it will be just a subjective reporting. So I asked them about 
how have they been sleeping lately and like most recently? And then how do they feel when they wake up the next day? What do they feel rested? And then if they're reporting things like, I don't feel like I'm getting sufficient sleep. Uh, however, you know, if we're defining that like seven to nine hours and then how are they feeling? Like if they feel like quality's down, looking at what are some things that we can do to help them like improve their sleep. And that's kind of like the second half of this write up is, okay, if we know they're related and we know we need to be addressing them clinically, how do we address them clinically? So you got to start with asking, you know, appropriate questions and then looking at what interventions can you do from there. Right. Yeah. One of the other themes that has been like that we've been uh, hammering over this actual podcast is that the effect of physical activity on sleep, not only sleep quantity, but also sleep quality. And it appears that physical activity uh, certainly seems to improve uh, sleep quality uh, and, and particularly the longer that people are exercising for like uh, chronicity that seems to help. And, and what, you know, when people have pain, they tend to be less active. So there appears to be uh, something there. Um, if you, you know, just again, for some practical takeaways, if you had uh, a, uh, a client, somebody you're working with um, who is reporting decreased sleep quality um, by whatever metric you end up, you, you know, asking them about this for, uh, and they're less active because they're they're having pain. How how are you going to wrap those together as sort as sort of a sell point? <laughs> to like, yeah. or, or 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 you know do you what, what's your plan there? Yeah. So like ultimately, that's a kind of a three pronged recommendation with this stuff to address both sleep issues, pain issues, which would get towards increasing physical activity. Is first would be cognitive behavioral therapy. So just adjusting the person's beliefs and behavioral responses to sleep issues as well as to pain issues. And that's kind of where the physical activity part comes in because the second recommendation is recommending adequate physical activity, you know, even if it's minimally meeting national physical activity guidelines and then hopefully exceeding them, uh, addressing that, which typically in the pain situation is going to come up with, well, I do X activity and get symptoms out of it. So it's further just like cognitive behavioral therapy approach, like addressing the beliefs about pain and then their behavioral responses to coping and dealing with it. If they're having like anticipatory anxiety or fear avoidance, helping them work through those things. Um, and then the last prong would just be uh, evidence-based pharmacological interventions, which actually seems pretty few and far between for both sleep and pain issues. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, when I was uh, still in medical training, there was a big sort of revolution in the about sleep like the medicines that we use for sleep because it's like none of them work that well yeah, <laughs> I mean, they, they work as far as put they work as far as putting people to sleep but actually their effects on sleep architecture and like the ability to use them long term yeah not not great so um like most things in life pertaining to the human body the stuff's complicated and there's no magic bullet um yeah they yeah. you know what's what's good about the physical activity and the sleep uh, sleep thing is that it appears that even like stuff that doesn't necessarily meet the guideline minimums appears to have a positive effect that like Derek's uh, review, we talked to talk about that a little bit, but trying to get people up to these sort of minimal guidelines uh, for uh, you get, you seem to get additional benefit. There's like this dose response relationship and uh, in addition to all the other benefits on health. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's like, and then, you know, a lot of people have issues with pain and a lot of people have issues with sleep. So tying these, you know, this really ties the room together to try to like. <laughs> it's a nice rug. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a nice rug, right? If you don't understand that reference, you need to check out the Big Lebowski. Um, all right, Mike, thank you for joining us this month. 
the Barbell Medicine Research Review podcast. Again, these topics were all about sleep, something you do for one third of your life, hopefully. And uh, we really go down the rabbit hole on all these issues. So if you want to read more about this, you can subscribe to the Barbell Medicine Research Review. Use code research at checkout to take 50% off your first month. If you're on the fence about, hey, what are you guys even doing each month? I'm not sure. You can get uh, two free issues, January 2020 and the January 2019 issue. Check it out. See if it's something you like. See if you want to join us. And as always, thank you for joining us on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Please like, subscribe, share this, and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. It really helps us improve our product. And uh, we'll see you guys next month. Thank you.